my friends, and welcome to the Space Game Junkie Podcast. I, as always, am your co-host, Brian. And joining me, as always, is your co-host, Jim. I am so excited to talk about Toe Jam and Earl. Which I'm, I'm sure those will come up. And uh, your co-host, Spaz. Brought to you by Plenty of Caffeine. <laughs> uh, it's 5.30 in the afternoon. That's that's tired. That's, that's tired. Yeah. Um, Folks, we have uh, two guests tonight, and uh, not to knock any of our previous guests or future guests, I love all our guests, but one of our guests, especially tonight, is very special. Uh, joining us, for, oh, you guys are in California, yay. Um, uh, Greg Johnson, founder and head of Human Nature Studios, Human Nature, did I say that? Or Human Nature? Okay. Because I tried to go with the cap- I tried to go with the capitalization, and Anthony Vaughn, the project lead of Starflight Three, which is the main game we're here to talk about. Welcome, gentlemen. Howdy do. Greetings. I I am all a flutter. Seriously, I'm really having a problem focusing right now because y'all, if y'all don't know, Starflight is one of my top three games ever. It was the first DOS game I ever owned. Uh, Bought it from a Radio Shack with a Tandy 1000 EX back in 1986. Uh, Basically, Brian has a waifu pillow with the star, the uh, star plate. Uh, yeah, you know, you know that you know the silhouette of the Velox, the Veloxi in the character yeah. selection screen. I have a, I have a pillow. No, um, no, I don't. No, I really don't. But uh, <laughs> too late. It's out. It's out. Someone's Everyone gonna, knows. Someone's well, gonna make it. No, oh, no. Well, here's, well, here's the thing. Right, is like his online name has been Veloxi. Yeah. For, oh, for real? As long as uh-huh. it's I, I've been using I've been using yeah. Veloxi uh, since I registered with Jumpgate back in 1999. Wow! So that's awesome. Yeah, no that's wow. that, that has been my handle in just about every space game. And if I can't get Veloxi, I'll either get Ulic or Gazertoid. <laughs> One of the rest. Right. And- <laughs> When we had the jump gate guy, what, like three weeks ago? So this is like full circle. <laughs> kind so of, sort of, yeah. But guys, really guys I don't want to I don't want to take away, you know, this is great, and I'm so glad you love Starflight, but I don't want to take away from Greg's time. I mean, it's not just about me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Obviously, Greg's – that's a joke for those who don't know. Greg's the guy who created all this. Yeah, we were yeah. getting there. We were, this is a, that was a long way to get there. Um, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. So who, who are you anyway? And, who let you in? Oh, I'm, I'm Greg's uh, bodyguard Wesley and car Wesley. driver. Yeah, I, I reach things in high places for Greg, carry heavy objects for Greg. No, uh, so I'm Anthony Vaughn. I'm, the, I'm a, the project lead for Starflight 3 that we're currently uh, crowdfunding at, uh, at FIG uh, right now. Right, and, uh, and that campaign is currently <laughs> ongoing. Is, is, it is about 50% funded as we, yeah, uh, we're as about we sit here? Funded. Yeah, yep. It's it's you know crawling slowly towards the finish line, uh, and uh, so yeah, we got about uh, just under ten days left, and uh, yeah, we're we're getting there. It's going to be um, well. I'll let Greg discuss you know what what how Starflight Three fits into the universe and everything like that. But but yeah, it's uh, it's exciting exciting times, man. Well, I mean, we know Greg's history, right? But uh, but yours, I don't. So wh- <laughs> where where what were you doing before this? Like uh, Uber driver. Or- yeah, just like well, no, Greg's personal driver. No, uh, 
Yeah, so Don't I put yourself down, Anthony. You you're quite good at it. Yeah. I mean, despite the accidents. I mean, you know, but but otherwise. I don't have a license, so they're never gonna find me, so it doesn't matter. Um no, I uh so I've been in I've been making games uh for just uh just over fifteen years. Um I've mostly uh, worked at places like um Backbone Entertainment and uh, Foundation Nine and Double Fine and Sega, uh, and so I've, I've had a pretty good yes yeah, Sega. Uh, so I had some pretty good uh, some pretty good uh, runs there with um, I've shipped about you know I don't know thirty plus games uh, mostly as an engineer also as a, a biz dev guy. Uh, so I met Greg um, in the early. 2000s, uh, where I was an engineer for a, a game that Greg was uh, kind of brought in to, you know, f- focus the design work for. And that's where I first met him. And that was almost in 2000. That was 2005, I think. So mm. ever since then, I just, uh, you know, coincidentally ran into the guy who made literally my number one game of all time, Starflight 2. That's and cool. so, uh, yeah, so it was pretty rad. And then um, that's kind of how it started as an engineer. And then I got a chance to actually work with Greg on Doki Doki Universe, one of Human Nature's um, PlayStation Vita and PC games. Uh, I was an engineer there at Sega. I was a biz dev guy that worked across the table from Greg to help him uh, take care of some Toe Jam and Earl licensing agreements. Yeah, that was so funny. Anthony worked for me here on Doki Doki Universe uh, as part of the team. Uh, And then right after that, he was at Sega and I was negotiating with Sega um, about the rights for the original games. And it was Anthony sitting across the table from me (laughs) negotiating with me. As you can imagine, it was a pretty easy negotiation. Like, well, we'll fix this, Greg. He's like, sounds good. All right. Talk to you later. <laughs> it's one of those deals. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, that, that is an awesome story. Um, but I would like to go back to the beginning, if you don't mind, uh, to the beginning sure. of this whole thing. So when did you guys start working on the original and how long did it take before it came out? I know some of this, but I don't know if everyone does. So let's start at the beginning. The original, as in Starflight One. Yeah, yeah. Let's oh, go all the way. Okay. Let's go all the way back. Then, right, wind it back. Yeah, that's, all right. That's before, well before I was in the industry. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. So, um, what is that? That's like um, eighty-six when it came out. The first one. Yeah, right. But so nineteen eighty-two yeah. uh, was really kind of when it started, and I was still in college. Um, Dear Lord. And my. Yeah, um, at UC San Diego. And um, my roommate, uh, Alec Kercho, uh, who uh, was one of the programmers on Starflight on the original game, he um, he actually jumped into the project before me. Um, his dad had some connection with uh, the producer, Joey Barra, and Alec was hired um, as an engineer. And um, I was always looking over his shoulder, asking, what are you doing? What is that? That's so cool. Can I do it? Can I get involved? And he was like, no, no, the game's almost done. We don't need anybody. Um, That was, uh, of course, after I started, we were three years in development to make the game. So um, Alec was a little bit off there. (laughs) Um, but I was brought on. It was straight out of school. I had never um, made a game before, but uh, that actually wasn't that much of a liability in those days because nobody had ever made a game before. <laughs> you know, Pretty it was much. really, really yeah. 
the early days, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was totally, everybody was um, like, do you know what you're doing? No, do, do you? No, <laughs> you know, and, well, we'll figure it out as we go along. And um, yeah, so I, I was straight out of school and um, there was another designer on the game, uh, a really interesting fellow named uh, Jim. I don't remember his last name, but he ran a board game uh, shop and he was a <laughs> funny guy, man. He he had uh, in his apartment, he had rows of uh, bookshelves like filled with fantasy and science fiction books. When you walked into his apartment, you thought you were like in a library. There were like aisles <laughs> and he, uh, he would go out of his apartment once a month or so to buy, um, a, a, you know, a basket full of these like giant kielbasa sausages, which he lived on. And then he would haul up in his apartment again. <laughs> and um, he was just a very interesting kind of eccentric fellow. And he had this idea for the game. Uh, he hired what they hired me to do was create all of these little random unrelated scenarios for encounters. And I was like, okay, so what's the story? Like, you know, what's in the universe? What happens? What's the big, uh, the big story arc and who are the characters and the relationships and the alien races? And they're like, oh, there is none of that. You just go out there and you just, you know, you fight and we want you to make these oh. uh, kind of, you know, it'll be like dice rolling, kind of like a board game, right? Like that was the original concept for Starflight. And so I, that's, I still have those original uh, scenario sheets that I made up in these old, uh, notebooks and and such. I have all those notes from the original days. And um, but I, I after a little while, I got kind of bored, and I started um, getting up on the table at our meetings and waving my arms around and saying, "Oh, we need a story." And how about this? And the alien races have to have a personality and a history. And how about this? And how about that? And the rest of the team um, really got into it and said, "Yeah, that's what we want too." And eventually. Uh, um, Jim sort of just kind of made an exit mm-hmm. off of the project, I guess. And I found myself straight out of school being uh, the lead designer on this project. Wow. So um, that's how it started. Sounds like he was living the dream, Ooh. man. Like wow. he basically lived in a, in a library and he ate sausage all the time and like never was bugged. That's awesome. <laughs> that's like my dream. <laughs> that was pretty great. I, I, yeah, I did always feel bad, though. I still do, even thinking back a little bit, because Jim was a good guy, you know, and um, it was just his vision for the project wasn't really what the rest of the team wanted. So I ended up kind of inadvertently, uh, you know, stealing that away. But, um, uh, you know, it was a long and difficult um, process, as games always are, even today. But back then... You know, we were almost canceled at least five or six times. Oh, my um, God. Yeah, none of us really knew uh, what we were doing, like I said. And the lead engineer, Dave Bolton, he um, – he another one of our engineers, I won't go into too much detail, but he, um, he was out for the count for a while because um, they, they were just working so hard. And at one point um, – he, uh, one, of, one of the engineers just stopped sleeping for a week because uh, he was so, his mind got so blown by the whole idea of fractally creating a universe or algorithmically creating a universe with this fractal geometry uh, <laughs> and having an entire universe in one seed number. 
like the entire universe that could like unfold because of the algorithms into this consistent, you know, universe with uh, hundreds and hundreds of planets and star systems and entire ecosystems and uh, down to the individual creatures on, on a mountain, all out of this one single seed number because of the algorithm. And he was so captivated by the math behind this and by the whole idea of it that he literally stopped sleeping and that caused some pretty major uh, major problems for a while. So we had a lot of crazy drama in the in that development. See, I, would, I would fear a revelation. Like you know, you get the you get the the formula right, and it's like, oh my god, it works. And then the clouds part, and God says, ah, you got me. Okay, that's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's how we did it. If I could share, yeah. if I could share a story with you, uh, you mentioned a guy didn't sleep for a week. I actually did the same thing playing the game once. I drank like a whole six pack of Jolt. Remember Jolt? And yeah, uh, man, yeah. didn't sleep for maybe six days and just played. It was my second playthrough of this, uh, of the first game. Oh my gosh. And wow. I just, Are you serious? Yeah. Like you're, you're, you're exaggerating, right? No. <laughs> I, no. I, this, was, this, was, this was like the summer of, um, I think, my seventh or eighth grade year at school. I had like nothing but time. And so that is what I did for almost an entire week is just play this. And he oh kept his gosh. pee in jars, wow. like under the desk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just I had one of those bags, you know, team. one of those, I forget yeah. what they call them now, one of those bags. Like bleacher buddies. <laughs> yes, you know? yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> those, so, those have got me through some uh, Starflight and some EVE Online myself, so I can relate. <laughs> I, I'm going to think about something else right yeah. now. Cause I'm, Greg, just focus on it, though. Just picture it. For- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, I, ha- I, have to, um, I have to say, back in, the, back in the day when this came out, it really set itself – I'm sure you've probably heard this a million times. But it was amazing how it set itself apart in a few key ways. One, it wasn't a simple game. Like games back then were so simple. Like even the more complicated mm-hmm. things were still so simple. And then you have this. Uh, but it was also funny. Like so many, like especially spacey games, took themselves so seriously. Like Defender, so serious and stuff like that. And you had a there was a lot of humor in this game. That's why. That's one of the reasons I love the Velox is that they they took no crap and they were just they they knew they were the cock of the walk. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they 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 made yeah. sure you knew it too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. They actually were always one of my favorite races. Uh, us, our best good buddies, every time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Yes. They, they they talked and stuff. Yeah. Um. You know, it was, that was mostly just out of boredom, really. Like, you know, I, I don't understand how people can make work on game for years and not go a little, you know, get a little kooky and start having fun with it. And um, that was um. I, I couldn't do it. That was mostly kind of to entertain myself as I was doing the writing. I kind of <laughs> had to <laughs> had to do that. Um, um, but you know, I'm sure, like you noticed too. I um, I really enjoyed the whole um, sort of uh, parody aspect of it of having the different alien races be kind of caricatures of different um, yeah. types of people, right? Um, the ultra obsequious kowtowing spemen who are all full of bluster and then would just turn right around and be, um, you know, <laughs> begging for mercy. Oh, great, wonderful. Yeah. You know, yeah. Demi God of my 
you know, prayers, that sort of thing. But um, yeah, I had, I had a lot of fun or the Gazertoid, right? Remember them? I love right? the Gazertoid. Sort of uh, mega religious proselytizing uh, uh, aliens. They were so um, mean. They were so mean. They were so angry all the time. <laughs> yeah, I love my favorite is still the humna humna because it's so vain and so oh, the like humna, they, humna. they had no self awareness whatsoever and they just knew oh. they were awesome but they kind of weren't like it was great yeah right like overly verbose they were the easiest ones for me to write because that's how I write normally nice one of my <laughs> favorite one of my <laughs> one of my favorite things about the first game is um it when you completed it it didn't end like the second one ended that was like really abrupt. But the first one, it didn't end, so you had this badass ship. So I always mm. just went and harassed the Gazertoid because I just loved, <laughs> I loved making them mad. I would jump around. I would shoot at them. And then I would hail them and be real nice. And then I would jump around. I would shoot at them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they earned it, though. They really yeah, did. Right. They, yeah, they, they, have to, um, they have to make your life miserable for that turn around at the end to feel good right mm-hmm. so that when you finally get to a point where you can hammer them it just feels so good yeah. finally. It was, you have to so have really great. suffered first it was <laughs> so great because they were like there was nothing you could really say to them that would uh that would make them happy like ever really so uh <laughs> but yeah the races were wonderful uh the the uh it's like really more than any other game especially at the time made me feel like i was a starship captain it was just astounding. And yeah, that- that's so cool. You know what's funny? We hmm. um, we didn't know that it was all going to work until very late on. You know, we had so many. There was like, as you pointed out, there was so much complexity to it, um, and there were so many engineering challenges to squeeze all of that down onto the floppy disks. And oh my god. Um, <laughs> We had, um, yeah, um, our engineers, you know, Tim Lee and Bob Gonsalves and Alec uh, Kercho, they were so, so good, uh, all, all of them. And um, Tim Lee, he came in at one point and he saw kind of what a mess we had and started restructuring and writing all of these technical docs. And, um, and but the funny thing is, you know, we just... It, didn't know that the game was going to all come together and work in all of its pieces and that it was even solvable until pretty late on. I remember being very uh, kind of uh, shocked and then pretending like I wasn't when somebody <laughs> finished the game for the first time and actually got to the end and that they realized it was possible, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Cause Greg, you, you described this to me once as, you know, and I could be messing up the actual description, but but how you had to design basically like hundreds of quote unquote gates for the player to get through, and that's that's still pretty different from today's design. Like for example, mm-hmm. you know, like Mass Effect, like wonderful series. One of one of the uh, one of the uh, inspirations uh, that that uh, that came from uh, from uh, Starflight. Um, but that's still a yes. You can explore as you wish to a degree, and stuff. But like you're still pretty much when it comes to the main narrative, you're you're on a sort of straight and narrow path with that. You're on rails for that. Um, but with Starflight, you I remember you said one of the major things that that you guys focused on really hard was to uh, was to to make that design like a graph, like a big networked graph of entering into the story from a billion and one different points and letting the I mean, can you describe some of that? Cause I think that was a really cool conversation you had over where Paul sure. Richie like yeah. talked to you about like designing that and how to do that. That, that stuff was so cool. 
Yeah, you want me to talk about that a little bit, you guys? Absolutely. Oh, I want to hear everything. I want all the sausage. I don't want to hear all the sausage. <laughs> I figured they wanted stories. <laughs> yeah. All every, right. Just yeah. Hit, hit me with as much that. as you can. Yes, please. Okay. Yeah, things? yeah. All right. Well, so like Anthony just mentioned, that was uh, like big uh, and eternal thanks to my good friend, Paul Ritchie, who was um, – he preceded me at – electronic arts he was one of the very originals there you know he had done a game um and released it prior to my arrival there called archon yeah do you remember that one i loved um chess plus plus kind of john and ann freeman yeah the the chessboard pieces that kind of come alive yeah um so paul was kind of one of the few sort of old hands already there um and you know when we started of course i I didn't know what I was doing and I knew I didn't know what I was doing. And, um, Paul sort of took me under his wing and he, and whenever I had problems, he'd kind of point me in a direction and give me these great ideas. Um, one of the things he said to me, uh, when I was trying to figure out how to structure, uh, an interactive story was he said, okay, let's get a big, big sheet of paper, like, his, uh, like cover almost, you know, the whole floor. And then we're going to start writing down the, um, the network of the story flow. And, um, and he described to me, um, what I should do. Uh, and that was enough to get me started. And I created this big, um, network of, uh, working backwards. So starting from the end, uh, starting with the crystal planet and, you know, discovering what it was and, how to and what you needed to destroy it here's where you needed to go to learn uh the information of its locale here's where you um here's what you had to do in order to get that information you needed to be uh you know befriend this race and you needed to get this information that was in these three locations and then in each of those locations how did you get that information i basically worked back this big network that had um all of these uh, um, different uh, potential pathways, and then sometimes it would converge down into narrow um, places where I knew where the players would essentially have to go, so I could kind of control the flow more tightly at those places. And I, I ended up with this thing that was all over the floor of uh, what each race basically knew, what you had to do to get past every point, and all these alternate paths that you could take at any point throughout the game. And um, that works when you are uncovering a backstory. So that's essentially what the story in Starflight is. It's a very detailed story, and um, but it's a backstory as opposed to um, a type of story that's more dynamic where the choices that a player makes actually change the course of what's happening in the story. That's a much harder problem to solve. You can't really do that um, with just a network structure like that. Um, but with, with that network, network structure, it really works well for uncovering backstory because, um, the backstory is fixed. It never changes, but you can traverse that network in any path in any order and you find story pieces in different orders. And then where I said those gates narrow, that's where you control, you say, okay, they're going to know, they're going to know all of these 15 pieces, uh, first in the sort of, but then, but then, uh, they have to 
you know, then you can say, well, I, I need them to know all of this before they can pass through this gate into the next section of the, the story. So you have this very loose control over how you can deliver that story, but you do it in a way that gives the players a lot of freedom to move through it. And, and of course, the player's never aware of those pathways. It just feels like you can go anywhere uh, at any time. And, and the reason I, yeah, and the reason I wanted Greg to describe that is because that, that for me, I think is the magic moment that was for Starflight, the Starflight games was mm-hmm. it felt like I found this out. It didn't feel like I was told it. <laughs> right. You know, mm-hmm. right. It's, uh, it's still great. Well, that's, that's a thing that I think we don't see a lot in games today, right? Because really. a lot of people follow that roguelike formula and it's just like everything's procedurally Because it's easier. Right? It's easier to do that. It's easier to put them it on, is, a, but, on a path. But it's like you know? It, if, you know, for, for the people who have, occasionally heard me mention a certain other game that is entirely procedural. I won't mention elite, but um, (laughs) that's what they need is they need some thread of, of a narrative in there that the player can find. And once they find it, then they can like hunt for the next piece of it. Right. And, and kind of string it along and then it develops into something. Um, Yeah. And you know, and, and you let the, yeah, you let the procedural stuff fill the gaps in between, but you know, then you have to have those keynotes that you hit that that's like, okay, now, now you're funneled down a, a path a little bit and then we let you go again. Yeah. You know, quite honestly, I'm surprised that we haven't seen more of that. I, I always thought that um, there would be a lot more growth in um, con- kind of conceptually in in the areas of interactive story and design and that people would take that uh, basic structure for uh, delivering backstory and evolve it into something that could also include um, a better, more well understood um, structures for uh, also having a dynamic story on top of Mm -hmm. the backstory, because that's where the real, challenges are in in my view um you know what i was describing is not easy to do but it's not you know once you understand it it's not that difficult really but uh creating a story where you have you change the state of the world based on what you're doing you you know Mm -hmm. you uh destroy a, a planet or you rescue an alien race that wasn't um, going to be there before and now they are all of a sudden and so the whole story can change or you have specific characters who um, you develop relationships with for better or worse and now they they do things that never would have happened before early mm-hmm. on in the story and that changes the whole course of what comes after that's that's where the real yeah. like gold is or the the brass ring for designers you know of interactive story that's what's and creating that in a simulated very open-ended type of environment that doesn't i mean even if you do it on in a branching way Mm. people tend not not to do that much either i guess i'm just saying i've i've been surprised that what we've seen more in in the realm of interactive story since then has been um, like what you guys pointed out, tends to be moving from point A to point B, uncovering a linear story, and then the designers perceive their their job to be to put obstacles in your way, whether that's some whether that's combat or puzzles 
or something um, hidden, but there's something you have to do to unlock the next step. And then you just move along down the path where you get sort of fed the story. And that's, that's kind of the common wisdom of um, game design so much. So it's become so common that what I've seen in a lot of young designers is they don't even question it. Like I'll go talk at, uh, you know, uh, game design to game design graduate students or whatever, and we'll have discussions and the, and the general attitude is, well, that's what games are. You know, that's what interactive story means. Well, I wonder if some of that doesn't come that, you know, the gated, uh, story stuff doesn't come from like the Japanese influence, especially in JRPGs, right? Because it's like, well, I can't go in that castle yet because I have to be level whatever. So now I'm going to take advantage of the procedural world and run around and just randomly encounter things until I've built up to the point where I can get through that gate. And, you know, so it, it basically they'll, they'll use like bosses as gated encounters that you can't beat that thing. So you got to play out here. And then once you're past that, then you're in another section of the game. And yeah, I, I think it's a lot of that. And, and I think also in, when you've been in development for a while, game development, you realize kind of looking from the inside out just how much stuff is done due to pragmatism. Oh, you're right. And true. so, you know, what Greg described and what we're talking about now, that in your thing with maybe some randomly generated stuff, that's a more straightforward way to design something. It's, 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 it's more, it's easier to schedule. It's easier to guess at how long it's going to take. And, you know, not to say that like, that still isn't very hard. I mean, to pull off a big linear story is no small feat, but it also, by the way, makes what Greg and his team did in 1986 that much more terrifying and amazing that they pulled it off. When you break that, you go nonlinear completely and 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 create this base of this state machine that needs to be kept in check at all times. And if, if, if any one part of it breaks, the game can't be completed. That's huge. Right. And that's and that's why I think, too, you know, it's like going back. It's it's. You, you that chance for things breaking is much less as much it's much easier to design for when it's a very linear thing yeah, yeah. you want to hear something uh, uh, sorry. <laughs> no go for it okay it. i know we're talking a lot it here. Is. um all right yeah just um just as anthony's talking it makes me realize there's this kind of funny irony uh as a developer where um there's like, the two ends of the spectrum at, where that make it really difficult to do what I'm talking about. So I just made the statement that I'm surprised at why I haven't seen more of that. And now I'm going to say why I'm not surprised to see more <laughs> of that. Um, and it's because uh, either, you know, the fidelity of games have gotten so high expectations have gotten so high. And the, um, and what that means is that the cost of games like triple A games has gotten so high. Oh, um Right. That, that, that when you have a huge amount of money at stake, that everybody becomes extremely risk averse. You have to you you've just got your, your burn rate is insanely high. You can't be, um, you know, iterating and trying things and experimenting. You have to be hitting your your milestones and you you have to have predictability. So uh, the fact that games have gotten triple uh, A games have gotten so expensive means that they've gotten, they've got had to get very safe and very predictable. So people aren't stepping out. And then at the other end of the spectrum um, for indies, uh, indies are always struggling, you know, to get by and just to survive. Uh, 
month to month and um, doing something aggressive and uh, speculative uh, is is very risky and almost impossible at that end. The only the only place it can really happen is kind of in the middle, um, you know, where where say you're building a game for um, uh, two million to four million dollars or something like that. It's not a hundred thousand dollar game indie game, and it's not a twenty million dollar triple A game. And those middle of the road games have kind of disappeared in yeah. our industry. They just don't exist much anymore. Yeah. It's all one or same that. with the middle tier publishers. I mean, a lot of them are big, big guys or small digital publishers now. And yeah, mm-hmm. it's very hard. So your game has this you know, team of staying small and very talented so that if you do get a couple million bucks, you could really make a whiz bang game. And even then it's like a one in 10 chance of it doing gangbusters. It's, it's a, it's a really bad business to go into, frankly. With every so develop- awesome though. You, it's a, with, with every yeah. developer we talk to, I'm like, why? I, I sometimes think to myself, why are you putting yourself through this? It just yeah, sounds game, like such a struggle. The game has to exist, and nobody else is making. I, it. I get, yeah, yeah th- all these developers are making games they want to play, which is wonderful. But like, I, I don't know if I could deal with the potential rejection after all that hard work launching a thing and then having yeah. no one care about it. It's just, it's. Well, it's, it's, a, it's like or, us. Or just get, it's getting like washed us. away by the next Steam sale. You know? Yeah. 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 You're, oh you only last as long as that little wave lasts. And then oh, the next Steam sale yeah. hits, and then you disappear. Yeah, and don't even go there, man. I mean, like the Steam, the output that Steam is dumping out games right now it's is disgusting. It's disgusting. It's, it's crazy. It's a super hostile environment. And that and goes right back to what Greg was saying, where it's like – yeah, 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 totally. It's, it's not hostile enough based on quality. It's just right. It, it, right, right. It, it punishes people that spend too long making something. Like in the last you put in, if you put in too much effort, you're going to get the same sales as somebody that flipped an asset thing and Yeah. yeah. In the last sure. two or three mm-hmm. weeks. That's true. In the last two or three weeks, I've seen the same the basically the same asset flip come on Steam as three different games. Yeah, it's it's weird. <laughs> it, it's it's yeah, weird it, when it's, you see that. Yeah, it's like one was a police game, one was a zombie game, and one was a taxi <laughs> game or something. But they're all the same game with just a tiny little bit of skin difference. Yeah. It's just but for some reason, to- everyone looks like elves and orcs. You know, like, it's the <laughs> same yeah. asset pack. It's like yeah. it has to be the achievements and the, oh, you know, this the cards, cards and stuff. Because, yeah. yeah, because otherwise, I don't see where there's an audience for this stuff. So there has to be something other than the game itself. I think it's I, that's the only. They thing buy a Unity it. thing that's twenty bucks, then they sell it for a dollar. If they sell twenty-one units, they made a dollar. Yeah, they made their money. Yeah, right. I mean, it's stupid. Yeah. But I'm, I'm just saying, I would have thought the consumer would have gotten wise to it by now. You're funny. The main thing about the the trading cards is the aftermarket, right? Because Steam's not going to stop that because every time any of those cards get sold on the market, they still get their 30% off that sale. Right. Mm. God. Mm-hmm. All right, moving yeah, on to, let's move on it's to happier topics. Yeah. Well, okay, so we should I, just go. I did want to well, ask. We were talking about. Oh, go ahead. About what, before they get away from the design thing. So, so how does Starflight. In, instead of doing the linear thing, you know, where, where it's like, okay, we have encounters in a hallway, right? And the player is going to get there or, or gating things. Do you just leave the, the universe open? 
and and hope the player stumbles on something and then that's kind of what Starflight connecting the dots one and two what. did, right, Greg? Are we talking about um, the original Starflight games or what yeah. we were yeah, the playing for the new one? Oh, okay. Um, I mean, was it was that just like here's the universe? Good luck. There's stuff out there. Maybe you'll I, find it. I would describe it as you're let loose in a giant th- in like a giant room, like a let's say a coliseum or a like a convention center, and you have crumbs all over the place leading you to an eventual finale. But the way you follow those crumbs is up to you. Yeah, but do they point to each other, or you just find it and it's a nice? They kind of do. They they give clues yeah. as to find other breadcrumbs. Because okay. that's what I wasn't clear about is like if if there's a bunch of things that look unconnected until you find enough and then you realize they're connected, but they don't actually direct you towards, you know, like, hey, you know, if you looked over that direction, you might find the next thing. Uh, no, no, they, they do connect. They all connect. And yeah. um, but what's what makes that hard to see from the outside is that um, there were a lot of different ways that you could uncover information. Uh, For example, there might be information uh, on a, you know, in some ancient ruins at some location and some um, alien race would happen to have the information of that location. Um, Mm -hmm. But um, in order to get that information, you would need to have them be, uh, friendly or, or perhaps even obsequious. And then you would learn from another alien race that they knew that and that, you know, the way to make them obsequious is basically to, um, to threaten them or, and they, and so there'd be this sort of chain, right. Of, of actions that, uh, that you'd had to do in order to get that piece of information that would then lead you to something else. But then, but then that information was also somewhere else, some other alien race, for example, um, and that's that was the main repository of most of the clue information was in the different emotional postures of each alien race, and that was really kind of the heart of um, of Starflight in terms of its mechanics. There was a lot of um, other supporting mechanics where you had to get enough resources, you know, um, from mining and planet recommendations and um, collecting, you know, life forms and that sort of thing, or or maybe even just uh, to get far enough across the galaxy took you enough fuel or you had to build up your ship enough to get through the the dangers to get there. Um, So there was a bunch of sort of organic gating factors in the, in your growth, but in terms of finding that clue information, um, that was mostly uh, buried down sort of this this sort of network of paths that were mostly embedded in the alien races. And then the thing that I was always most proud of and most excited by when we were building the game was the uh, communication system that we built and the whole, um, like, how would you even call it? The AI system, personality simulation system for the alien races, because you would have a variety of things that would push their their dial up and down from them being, you know, uh, hostile to neutral to friendly um, and and then being sort of best friends. And then they had different sorts of fight or flight responses based on the sort of a perceived power ratio of you to them and how... Um, you know, we had all these stats like that, that that defined every alien race and the machinery of how they moved through these different states. And then every state 
had its own pool of information that you could access. And so um, that was kind of under the hood, right? But so you might have to make the Veloxi into best friends in order to get at the really good information that they had. Um, and, the own, and there were certain ways you had to to do that. Mm-hmm. Like with the Thrin and the Elowan, for example, they mm-hmm. you would learn what enemies they were of each other and why, because the Thrin would eat <laughs> eat the Elowan's <laughs> head fruit, remember? Yeah. <laughs> of the young, the, the, right? Uh, they considered it mm-hmm. like an aphrodisiac or something. But it's kind of like us with like veal, you know, or something like that, where it's like, it's like but, eating babies. But, get the, but, then, <laughs> but then to, bed, guess, to get the best crew, you had to have one of each. Yeah, right. You had to have um, them on your ship. <laughs> it was working together. Yeah, exactly right. And that was one of those examples of I just I wasn't sure how that was going to work out. Like what we when I, I was like, hmm, is this going to work? I wonder. You know, I I had a few kind of vague ideas of how um, you might uh, you, you know you might be able to drop a crew member from your crew but the the saving grace and the reason why it worked because there was always alternate paths so mm-hmm. if if you couldn't get that information from the thrin like if you kept an elowan on your crew and they just would not talk to you anymore there was still another way always another yeah. way for you to get the information you needed and it uh, always and it always felt natural it always felt well, right. like this organic right. story moving forward that you were a part of it never felt like I was being pulled in a direction or anything. You know, I always felt like I well, had agency. It's amazing. But because because of the amount of agency that the player gets, though, I think that in a in a current game, right, where somebody's designing a thing and they want to tell a story, but if you give the player that much agency, you're giving the player the ability to screw up the game because it, it's like, well, if the player needs to to have the world in a certain state for this to continue. Yet he has made enemies of the people that, you know, it's like he befriended the wrong guy or like in an RPG. It's like I'm allowed to kill anybody. Well, I went up and I backstabbed this guy and killed him. Little do I know he's the guy that gives me the quest that That, actually ends the game and he's dead. I don't think so. I don't know if that's possible in Starflight because they're so. No, because what he's saying is he he had to he had to basically do a lot of um, of redundancy out there right where it's like if you exactly if you, yeah. if you screw this up it's still over there so there's no way that you can paint yourself into a corner you can't get out of and again this is why paul richie recommended to greg to get a big piece of paper that's going to cover literally most of your work like that network to do that especially your first game out of the gates is just so not trivial and is so error prone forget the bugs but jesus it's a it's a it's really is impressive when you when you uh when you especially when you peeked inside development like like so many of us have yeah that's why i really didn't know if it was gonna work yeah. or not uh, it was i was as surprised as anybody um and i don't know you know it may be that it, it was possible to get stuck in that in the game um but i think there was enough there were enough uh, uh, like you said redundancy enough alternate paths that it was extremely unlikely. Mm-hmm. The other uh, question that you you just raised, which I find really interesting and kind of want to throw back at you guys, is um, when you have uh, an open world like that that's open to that degree where it requires that players really um, are making choices all the time of 
what their goals are and what they're going to do and where to go. It, um, it requires an awful lot of the player. Like, right. You probably had notes, like reams of notes, yeah. right? Oh my God. So I, I wrote down every, uh, flux entrance and exit and, and yeah. I wrote down like the, I, every it, time I restart yeah. a game, there's always that one planet you go to with the Meccans that if you get past <laughs> oh, them, man. you, uh, you you make it you recommend it for colonization. That's a big huge influx of money right off the bat, and it's easy to get there in the early game. So all just no, sheets and sheets of notes. For this yeah, game. and to your point earlier, this was this is I had a Tandy one thousand S. So there was no like, all right, get the star map as a, as a ping, and, and then uh, nope. let's fire up Photoshop and and write our own you know coordinates over this thing. It was all hand pen and paper, you know, like exactly. It, was, it made it it made it that much more cool, I think. Oh god, yeah. Well, I guess that that's my question though. Is like looking at players today, how do you think they would feel about something like that, um, and, and current expectations? of gaming and, um, you know, general patience for that kind of stuff. I, I, yeah. What do you think about that? I will be honest with you. When I tell people, um, that they should play Starflight if they haven't played it before, it's not the story or the openness that I warn them about. It's Mm -hmm. the archaicness of the interface because it's, Mm. it's very eighties and it's very simple, (laughs) but it, it's some people, see that as a pro- like some people have a problem with it because it's so simple and um well to be yeah to be fair like when you're building your crew so like you gotta you gotta oh gather god your, yeah yeah exactly train your oh crew, my god yeah assign your crew yeah and again yeah. no one was doing this yet so having a back button just wasn't a thing no <laughs> so i'm it's not like, i'm not knocking shit, I'm it i'm not knocking it yeah no, no 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 like, i know it's so no, funny there was no ui standards back then uh yeah, there yeah. was barely uis back then but uh, but I don't yeah. warn I don't t- I don't warn them about the openness of it because I think gamers today can handle it if you give them the tools necessary to navigate through it. I, yeah. I, th- well, I, we, think, we, I think gamers we, we totally kind of live fun. in an open world gaming nirvana right now because everybody is, wants right. that open world. But a lot of but open the, worlds they don't really aren't want as it open. Wanna, yeah, they want the right. comp. They it's, want the compass, like, compass telling right. them exactly so, where to go. And yeah, and and exactly. it's like. Kid, when I was your age, I had a thing of graph paper sitting on my desk with the mm-hmm. damn dungeon on it, and I was trying <laughs> to figure out in Bard's Tale like which floor tile I stepped yeah. on oh, around. Oh god, yeah. And yeah, I was going through a closet years ago, and I found that stack of graph paper that was like Bard's it's the Tale best, movie, and it was just yeah. like, oh my god. Oh my and, god. I, and I was going to toss it, and then I was like, ah, oh, I better keep this. I wish I still had those notes. All the, so many notes of um. Yeah. Of, of this game. Yeah, that would be fun to see, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, maybe that, that's a stretch goal on your thing, then. It's like, you know, if, if you get, uh, it, you can order the deluxe edition, which is a physical copy that actually comes with a pad of graph paper. <laughs> That'd be great, yeah. Now let's, well, I let's, think, uh, yeah, we have to do that. Now, let's talk about the second game. Let's move on a little bit to the second game. Uh, mm-hmm. So, I'm guessing the first game was a hit enough that. Um, that they wanted a sequel. That was yeah. That was uh, the first EA game. That was the first PC game period to go platinum. One million copies. What? Oh wow! Congratulations. Yep. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm not oh, surprised. Yeah. It, it was in every Radio Shack I ever went to. 
back in the day. Well, yeah, <laughs> of course. And so I hope that gave him confidence. And that's when EA was like six dudes in a in a closet, man. Like oh, that was a small. And they were putting out then. everything. Like here's a music making game. Here's a pinball game. Here's a Arctic yeah, tank right. game. Here's a here's everything. And then- Here's a universe on a floppy. Yeah, know? that's right. Oh, yeah, one thing you I know, wa- it's funny too. Sorry, I wanted to ask one thing about the first game. The only sure. problem I ever ran into with it, bugs wise, really, was the save game feature. Oh God! What was what was uh, what was up with that? Something someone told me it like saved the entire universe state, and that's why it would cause problems. Like, what was the pro- What was the issue with the save game? Do you remember the details of this? Because I do. No, you go for it. I don't. I don't really remember. I just remember. I just remember it was a big issue. Yeah. So what it did was. So the reason you had to make the 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 star you had to make the backup floppies was because it saved the state of the game into the executable itself. So it rewrote its own com file. So that. Uh, is bad because if you messed up that save state or if you didn't save properly or something like that, like you could nuke your whole game progress. And Um, and a lot of us did at least once. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you buy one of the coolest features now is if version of Starflight one and two, they have in Starflight one as part of the intro menu, like just, you know, reset to fresh game because they know it happened. So they've they've sort of oh, they yeah. pre made backup floppies where they just you know put them right back in. But yeah, so uh, yeah, because Greg, you weren't coding on the project, so that's why you probably didn't know. But I remember reading about this where yeah, exactly. And Starflight Two obviously did not do that. You save files, but yeah, Starflight One actually rewrote its own executable that's to save its own game, which crazy. is so dangerous. That is yeah. so, so the, crazy. So the craziest thing that's like that super risky deal right is i cannot remember what the name of it was it was some like stunt flight simulator thing that stunt, was on the commodore stunt island it, no it's it's old like commodore 64 mm. and mm. on the floppy but there was a, the a side and the b side of the floppy right so you flip oh over. no and there was a there was a competition part of the game like once you know it's like get good and then flip that disc over and you get to play the competition thing. Oh, but no. if you crash and die, it blanks the disc and you're done. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. God, no. Was so, was yeah. that intentional? Yes. Oh, yeah, it oh. saves the state and God. it saves the state in there and you can't do that again. Is that the original like Iron Mode for, uh, for these yeah. games? <laughs> it's the Dark Souls of Commodore 64. Oh, wow. oh, God, that, that's yeah. brutal. That, that hurts. That hurts. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, I feel that one. So compare yeah. that to say a game like Skyrim, where if you have a quest giver that dies, what's the reaction? Oh yeah, I'm just can mod back in, you know, resurrect. Right. They don't die. Mm. So, right. Which look, I'm sorry. all for, frankly. Yeah. So moving no on to Starflight Two, because we do need to get to Starflight Three at some point. <laughs> uh, so Starflight <laughs> One is a platinum hit. Congratulations. That is wonderful. So. What, what what when you start working on Starflight Two? When do you start adding? Like the big things were like trade that was amazing, and um, the nebula. Like were, were those the things you had right from the get go that you wanted in the second game, or were there other things that like had to be cut? Like how was the process going from one to two? Uh, yeah, well, um, when we did game two, 
that was just me and Bob Gonzalez, just the two of us. Um, uh, so we, um, you know, we built on, of course, the system of game one, but we had to be kind of selective about how many new mechanics we could add because it was just the one engineer. Um, I mean, Bob was amazing, but, um, you know, he's just Bob. And um, so in terms of mechanics, yeah, the, the, trade, uh, the trade was probably the biggest uh, single new mechanic in that game. Um, you know, and we did have, like you said, the nebula and the, um, the continuum fluxes and uh, time travel. traveling around that time travel. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah, right. Time travel. And um, but the story was kind of the main thing, you know, um, that was the um, that was really and, of, and, you know, and the new alien races, that was where most of our effort went. And like you probably remember in game one, the story was really um, kind of a contextual shift uh, in terms of um, in terms of your sense of time. Right. Because the whole idea behind it was you're collecting endurium uh, the whole throughout the whole thing. You mean you're, this way. You mean you're killing the ancients. Sorry. Mm, I'm still yeah, not over right. that. Sorry, right, I will right, never right. get over yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So um, you're the bad guy. And there's conflict <laughs> going on because, right? There's the whole wave of aliens moving uh, from uh, spinward to outward, uh, and this kind of as stars are flaring um, in this band moving outwards, and so all of these races are kind of fleeing, and the most aggressive ones are sort of t- uh, are being aggressive and causing problems then. So that's sort of the, uh, the, the ostensible problem in the beginning, but then you find out, well, why are the stars flaring? It's because um, the ancients have been causing that. And then, of course, at the end, you find out, uh, oh, the ancients are actually defending themselves against you, uh, carbon life, because they are a different type of, they're a silicon-based life form that lives in a different kind of time frame, a much, much slower time. And, and when carbon-based life appeared in the uh, it, it first appeared in the galaxy, it was to them it was kind of like a flash, right? Uh, carbon-based life, like bacteria, lived so fast and burned so hot. They were like this disease that was spreading across the galaxy and and uh, and specifically destroying them. And so they were using this uh, the star flaring uh, wave to basically try to protect themselves. So you find out that you are the you've been burning them in your spaceship the entire game Jesus. and that your whole right uh, your whole species uh, it, you that you're you're the aggressor right? so that was game right? <laughs> so that was playing with the idea of of time right and their sense of uh, of of time because they operated in a very different time frame than than we did the carbon life and it was hard to even communicate or perceive in the same way as them and then in game two it was kind of the same idea but just shifted out of time into space with the idea that the um that the ool are were this giant you know like parsecs wide being and the ool would essentially would get infected by the um by the life forms within within their body as their body sort of spread out over parsecs. And so they would basically 
uh, either destroy them with their own kind of antibodies or they would basically subsume them. And that's what the le- how the lek became the ul lek. And you find out in game two that the ul um, are really this, um, are, are the, is this being that's, uh, uh, that operates on a different order of uh, space. So that was kind of just took from the first game, the idea of time and shifted it in the second story into this uh, trying to kind of get you to think in a new way about, um, you know, space and what, you know, life and existence, all yeah. that stuff. The scale of it all. Right. And, the scale and, of it all. Right. And Starfly 1 and 2 did really teach you about scale. More than any other game. Uh, yeah, right. Because my God. Right. Now, I want to take a few side trips before we get to Starflight 3. First, um, there was the Genesis version of Starflight 1, uh, which yeah. was amazing. Like, I never played it until, like, maybe five years ago, and I was shocked at how much, how good it was. Like, I was expecting it to be garbage, because... You know, it's was, on a, it's it's an exact same boat. Yep. It's on a console. Mm-hmm. But no, it was, I think, maybe better than the DOS version. Because, like, the first time I tried to land, I thought the ship was going to do it itself. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> it is a wake up call. Yeah. Boing. You're damaged. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, crap. Yes. Right, right. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a number of people, they actually preferred that version to the PC version. I actually, so, um, I actually tell people if they're going to play Starflight for the first time, emulate that one because I think that's mm-hmm. the, that's the most approachable one out of the original original game. It is I the most approachable. Yeah, man. I, I'll say I, it's it's the most approachable. I too, like you, didn't didn't play it until literally a few years ago. Um, the only I, I still have the PC version, but you know the most. I think just because like that gave me the truest sense of like. I like the arcade elements and the skill-based elements in the in the uh, Genesis one uh, for sure, but like the landing and that kind of jazz and the, and, the, and gravity, you know, is just wonderful how it affects that. Um, but one thing I do definitely love more about the Genesis version is that front, that opening title screen music. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have gotten so many mm-hmm. requests for that music uh, in the Starflight Three campaign. It's oh, so wow. funny and merited, and it's totally merited. It's really good. It's it's funny. I um I bought the cartridge because I wanted the manual because the manual includes like a lot of hint stuff that the other manuals didn't. And someone gave me a Genesis just so I could play. Oh, it. nice! <laughs> so mm, I've nice. Been, I've been playing it on my TV. It's really great. But there was also um, is this true that the game Protostar was kind of a Starflight three or supposed to be? That's what I've heard over the mm. years, but I'm not entirely sure. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, vaguely, the, the the name of the game is familiar. Um, there was never any kind of uh, official relationship that I was aware of. It. Ah, okay. Um, be that it was inspired by Starflight, quite possibly. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I I never had any involvement with that myself. Uh, okay, I wasn't sure about that one because I'd heard over the years that that was like an unofficial Starflight three. Um, yeah, I've never heard that lore, but maybe it's nowhere near as good. It's it's completely bad crap. But um, <laughs> but yeah, that's just what I've heard. And are you are you final thing? Are you guys aware of the fan made game that came out a little while back called um the I think it's the lost Co- the last colony or the lost colony? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I was in contact with with them uh, back some years ago when they were doing that, and they were really nice people. Um, re- I mean, just uber enthusiastic and um, and very respectful. And they had asked whether or not they could, um, you know, make the game. They'd asked whether or not they could uh, sell it. Uh, um, uh, I had I had said to them, you know, well, one. I don't own the rights to Starflight, and so I was sort of a conduit between uh, Rod McConnell, the fellow that does own the IP, and them. Uh, but um, you know, we—they had a bunch of questions uh, about the aliens, and I was always happy to answer those. Um, but yeah, you know, they were. Um, it, it was just made clear to them that they—they they were free to go ahead and do that, but they just had to make sure that it was, you know, publicly known that it was a fan game and not, uh, not the official game. Cause I think we always thought, I know Rod did and I did too, that um, we might want to do an official one someday. So um, <laughs> speaking of, <laughs> exactly. let's, get, let's get to that. Is he involved in this new one? Is, are any of the original uh, guys involved in the new one? Oh, um, well, not specifically. Rod uh, still owns the IP. Um, He's mostly retired these days. um, And but he's um, he's given us our blessings. We have a contract with him, you know, uh, to go ahead and, you know, make a new game. And he's uh, when I asked him, I think his exact words to me were, um, you know, oh, my gosh, Greg, you are Starflight. You know, of course, whatever you want to do. So um, he is, uh, you know, Rod hired me straight out of college when he had absolutely no reason to have faith in me. And then he made me lead designer of this project. And uh, I am forever, ever grateful to that guy. Uh, He's he's always been kind of a hero of mine. And... um, so, uh, and then as to the others, you know, on the project, uh, there were people that kind of came and went, uh, you know, I mentioned Dave Bolton or there was another engineer, Rich Dugan, but, um, the, the main crew that was there for the, you know, for most of the project and that saw it to the end was me and Rod and Alec and Bob and Tim Lee. And, um, I'm still friends with all of them. We still, you know, are in touch with each other. Um, you're the only one still in the game business, right? I'm the only one making games still. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Tim showed up here, um, at my office, uh, um, a few months ago, uh, when I told him we were going to run the Kickstarter with a box full of notebooks and, um, yeah, notes that I had no idea still existed. He, all of my old, all of my old scribblings and uh, original, uh, you know, story ideas and uh, maps and everything was in there. It was, it's been really fun for me and Anthony to kind of look through all of that. Oh stuff. man, it's it's been heaven for me. And in fact, if you look at on the Fig uh, campaign and one of the updates, uh, I post a picture that I purposely posed of some of the juiciest stuff from Greg's archives and. Uh, one thing that was immediately called out was Greg's original handwritten piece of graph paper where he designed the Interstell logo, which is pretty, pretty freaking rad. So um, there's crates of it. I've, I've got four, four Tupper, four, four Rubbermaid cake, uh, crates of binder upon binder upon binder of Greg's handwritten. <laughs> Man, it's, 
definitely if that was written were, back then. You should do an yeah. add-on to the fig campaign where people can chip in to have all that scanned, like pay a document yeah, company to scan all of it and and have it like as a digital extra. I would pay money. I would chip in extra money on top of my pledge for that. I'm not even kidding. That's cool. Yeah, no, and, and, and a lot of people echo the same regardless of my role in the project, um, just as a fan. Yeah, and, and I've, uh, yeah, I've, I've got those things saved and checked away. The, the plan by hook or by crook is to get those things scanned. And I got some buddies at the, at the Video Game Historical Foundation and some Ooh. other pals in the industry. So, yeah, you know, we're gonna, I'm going to coordinate with Greg and see how we can do that. I would love, 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 love to just be able to release those PDFs and, uh, and get them to people who would just... Oh. Love nothing more than to pour over those for hours. I know, would pour so. over those. I would sit on the toilet for days and just read <laughs> yeah. that on my phone. For again, days. imagery not not that I was looking for, but you know. <laughs> that's where I do all my reading. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny. I told Greg, I'm like, Greg, I, I, uh, I'm going to take all these, uh, you know, for you know, for archives and for reference for the game. And he obviously was like, No, it sounds great. You know, where I'm trying to, you know simplify and that kind of stuff so the real reason though is i just i basically it's my nighttime reading now and my wife's a little concerned about it but i don't care i i, I did it for totally selfish reasons to get these uh these old notes so hell yeah awesome. so now where how much of the uh, new game has been made at this point are we still in like very early alpha like because we've seen a little tiny yeah. sliver of footage and that's right and that's right, right. so so where we're at now is we've got um, uh, a prototype, uh, which is a composition of a couple different scenes that we've made uh, in the, in the uh, in the new game, and that is really you know I guess if you had to put this on a development schedule, it would be in the discovery slash pre production phase. So again, not even alpha, man, like really early prototypes. Wow. Um, and the reason is is because. Um, uh, we're, we're, we've broken them down into like, look, you're going to make a modern starfight game. So you're going to break the mold in some places, but there's still a structure that you're probably going to follow. And we figured that at a minimum, we're going to have planetary exploration, solar system navigation and galactic navigation. Right? So we just started there and just built those scenes to start experimenting with those. And that's where you see landing on the planet, taking off from the planet, you know, capturing some creatures and that kind of stuff. So uh, there's a quick alien interaction there. And so we, uh, we have that stuff and that's what we're just, we're trying to keep those. I believe they're not separate from each other right now to just sort of try and find the fun in each type of, of, of scenario. Um, while Greg has already, he's already written the, the, the story arc for the game. And that's probably the most closely guarded secret on the, on the project, which I Greg loves it. to talk about. I want to talk think about that's it. Exactly why. <laughs> I, want, I want to hear it right now. I want to, I just, you just can't lay it out for right. me. You can't. Greg can tell you some stuff, but I'm authorized to pull the train gun if I need to. So. Son of a gun. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I probably shouldn't say too much, although I, I'm, I, I definitely, it is, um, as Anthony can attest to, um, a bit of a liability of working with me because I do tend to blab. Um, <laughs> but um, I can tell you how it starts out, uh, maybe. Is that, is that Let's enough? start Toast, at something. Yeah. I'll yeah. take whatever <laughs> I can get. Any little crumb, yeah. I will take it. So I, I will tell you that um, it's uh, it's very 
big and deep and kind of cosmological, but it doesn't uh, seem to start that way initially. It starts with a very um, immediate situation uh, where uh, the planet that you're on uh, has come under quarantine. There's a disease that's that's spreading where everybody's basically turning stupid and um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, and turning essentially kind of um, anti-science and um, and and science is sort of uh, go, starting to almost go backwards and um, the the you find out that this disease is actually uh, not exclusive to uh, just the planet that you're on. And in fact, not even just to humans that other uh, alien races seem to get this disease. And there's some organization that is uh, responsible for, um, they say for uh, safeguarding uh, sentient species um, because this disease only hits sentience and seems to only hit them at a certain level in their development. You, um, are quarantined, but you find a way off of the planet and you start um, digging into what's causing this. And in fact, you're even at risk yourself. Some of the people that you encounter may have this disease. Um, it also makes you, uh, you and other aliens uh, laugh at random times for no apparent <laughs> rational reason. Yes. And um, for whatever reason, it makes humans have a little stubby, little spotted tail too <laughs> that they try to hide. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> so you can always That's... tell someone who's got got the disease. It's like the old V show, you know. You know. Oh, you, you, yeah, like, yeah. You would yeah. get the green, the green on your neck if you were, uh, you know, pregnant or something like that with a, with a visitor. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I shouldn't go too much further down the road, but I will just say that um, things are not what they seem. Pretty much nothing is. And the story kind of gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And there are these question marks like right from the beginning that don't seem like they could possibly have any answer at all. For example, there are artifacts that you find that seem to be uh, older than the age of the universe, mm-hmm. which makes absolutely no sense. Does, yeah, it doesn't add up. Yeah, um, but there are there's reasons for all of it, and one of the things that we wanted to achieve with this uh, story was to give you um, a really compelling reason to. L- Um, to learn about the perspectives of every alien race you encounter in terms of what their beliefs are, what what they think life is all about, you know, what the, you know, what the universe is in fact. And, um, uh, and everybody has, you know, their, um, their interesting alien views and perspectives and how they look at things. And we wanted to, really highlight the sort of alienness of, uh, um, uh, of, you know, like so many science fiction stories, you, I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but I feel like they're often, um, they often feel like just people in alien suits. Right. But um, then every now and then you'll, you know, you'll read a really good science fiction novel or, or even more, and there's plenty of them out there, but uh, good, really good science fiction movies are harder to find, and really good science fiction yeah. games are even harder to find. Yeah. Right, that where that they don't. It's not just like you know, aliens that are could just as well be people. They just look weird, and they've got laser guns and right. But then, but you'll see a movie like Arrival. See that, 
You remember that one? I've not. Uh, was, that, was that Arrival? Did you say? Yeah. Yeah, I've not seen that. Just a, I've not. A I, wonderful I, movie. That's what I keep hearing. Yeah, I just have not gotten around to seeing it. Yeah, I mean, it's not the only example of that, but it's just the one that kind of comes to mind um, uh, of an example of sort of alien perspectives and trying to get into the mind of how they see things. And um, and the, so you sort of twist your mind around into a new shape of how they perceive, and all of a sudden things kind of become clear from their perspective. That was one of the things that kind of intrigued me and Anthony a, a lot about um, you know, what we wanted to achieve in this story. So we almost went about it, uh, sort of upside down with that first in mind and then crafting a story that would, uh, that would allow you and almost force you to have to really get into the mindset of all of these different alien races to sort of understand, because there's kind of a common thread. Once you start doing that, you realize that there's some truth buried into all of their all of their points of view and all of their histories and stuff that where it kind of, you solve this mystery of what's really kind of happening. Right. And, and that sort of is a nice point of connection back to star flight one and two, you know, one thing that was a limitation of the time was a lot of these, you know, these things that Greg and his team overcame with, you know, the generation of the universe planets, even placement of characters and that kind of stuff. But you, you couldn't get, a sense of like, where, where'd the Veloxi live? Like if you were just a fly in a wall, what are you witnessing? It's not just their words, you know, a la Star Trek when you, you know, you hail them and they appear on your view screen. Like it, it that's something that we, and again, it's, you know, with this, this idea of the story, this perception of, of an alien perception of its existence is so much different than just sight, sound, smell, and voice that we associate and so how do you wrap that into this game in this story with the that that sense of wonder and again it's it's in our opinion i think one of the best ways to really give you a jumping off point to say you want you want immersion you want really to be dropped into the sandbox you know you know face first here you go like how do you observe a truly alien species and understand what the heck they're trying to convey to you while this weird sickness is going on, while this this organization is out to get you, them, maybe, and somebody else, maybe not, I don't know. And so, you know, it's 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 this component that is just so big. Um, and and just like in Starlight One and Two, it's got to permeate every single piece of the game. It, it has to feel like it's percolating up from the surface, from the from the from the bottom, not uh, not being you know down going down a rail. If that makes any sense, but <laughs> no, it totally yeah. does. It totally does. Kind of like I mean, going on a rail of a story, but yeah. <laughs> I, and I do have a, a couple of questions because gamers are different now yes, than they yeah. were in, in 1986 or 89, and they we don't have the patience or the time because one, there are a lot more games, but two, we just don't have the patience anymore. So yeah, how mm-hmm. do you? make the universe still feel huge and expansive while not so much so that the user might get frustrated or bored, you know, Greg, I got this. So you heard it here first. The game is going to be purely free to play with nothing but skins. That was the best part about Starflight one and two is all the included. I love getting the hats. The Velox had such great hats. They really yeah, did. yeah, exactly. <laughs> you need dem hats. 
Um, we're going to charge for different ammo types. It's going to yes. be amazing. No. Yes. Um, uh, Planet you know, Loot Crate. I want to find Planet Loot Crate. Anyway. Yeah, sorry. Greg had the great idea of just every paragraph, you know, a new PayPal button comes up and you just hit it for 15 <laughs> cents. You get, you get more and more of the story. Oh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So obviously that is all a joke. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, Greg, and I know you got some great thoughts, but uh, one thing to me is, is I, I feel that gamers aren't as impressed as they used to be. Um, uh, no Man's Sky is a great example. Um, their their technological, you know, uh, feats of generating 48 quadrillion stars and all this stuff is meh. You know, I think it's I think it's very <laughs> impressive, right? Uh, but players were kind of like, cool, meh. Yeah, I mean, again, that game is wildly successful and deserves it all. But, um, but yeah, it's it's a toughie. Uh, I, I do think having a common thread of story and 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 world is still, um, you know, as as a good story, no matter what the medium is, always a way. Right. But mm-hmm. one thing I was uh, thinking on is like the planets in Starflight One and Two. The planets are massive. Like if you want to do a whole thing, you got to take off and land multiple times. You can't do it in a rover, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, are the planet? Are you planning on having the planets still that kind of same or similar scale? Because Starflighty games more recently, I've really abstracted that a lot. You know what I mean? How do you feel? The the reason why those planets were big, and the reason why um, that's probably important and i think we would do the same thing again in terms of scale was um because then you can hide stuff then it's really (laughs) critical right then you have to get the information of where you're going otherwise you just go and you just cover all the terrain and you find it right and you don't need to follow that's a good point if we give if we give somebody like an an, a a new TV that can that can you know is like a hovercraft it can float on air with unlimited fuel that's gonna suck fast because yeah to Greg's point it makes the world small and you everything will be found pretty easily so yeah you know too in regards to your question about what um, what will satisfy players now um, that's always a really hard question to answer um, and I think you know the way I've generally chosen to approach that over the years. And, um, and I think probably you're the same, Anthony, is that you just make a game that you wish you had to play. You know, you kind of have to be a fan first. You have to just love it and really, really want it. And, and then visualize if I could have anything, what would I want? What do Mm. I, what am I dying to play? Mm. And I know for, for me in this realm, the answer is, good science fiction that is like a story that's so interesting and so compelling aliens that are so fascinating and so alien um, and things that make sense. You know, once I can figure them out that that's what's what would I know would drive me forward and keep me playing. I don't, frankly, I, I personally, I don't really care how big the universe is. I mean, I want it big enough so that I can, have the illusion of freedom that I can go where I want and not feel like I'm on rails. I don't really care if I really am on rails or not. I just don't ever want to notice them. And what I really want though is purpose. It's like a sense of story because that's, that's what I look for in science fiction, you know? So, um, you know, uh, here's a, here's a funny illustration. Like imagine that you could create the most effective uh, 
efficient and impressive open world simulation game ever. Like imagine that in fact somebody had and we're in it right now. Right? This is a this this game is so good that it's it's almost impossible to tell the difference between this and reality. And then ask the question, okay, so What do I do? How do I win? What's my sense of purpose? How fun is this game? Right? All of a sudden you, you realize it doesn't matter how good the simulation is, how complete the open worldness of it is, or how Mm. big and extensive it is. What matters is, is the meaning that you're looking for, the sense of purpose that you have, and that kind of causality that drives you forward. Same as in life as in, as in a game. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, I love it. So, yeah. I love it. Yeah, exactly. It's it's exactly the devil is in the details. Again, it's it's just like it's just like your own neighborhood. When you go home, you're not worried about what's going on in Bangkok. Like you're gonna go every night, either either gonna eat at home or you're gonna go to your local bar or you're gonna go whatever. Like you tend people tend to just do that, right? For mostly for pragmatic reasons of not being super rich and can just fly off to Bangkok. But it, when so when so when you start thinking about these things like what's the point like I, I don't care if I have a, a perfect globe of, of, of a billion cities to go visit I, I just want to worry about what what I have to do for myself um, I, I do worry about what goes on in Bangkok well yeah sure I mean I do too my fiance's in Bangkok so oh. <laughs> okay so bad example okay yeah but you know I'm just saying if a monster came <laughs> and you had to choose a city to get eaten no I'm kidding um, but yeah. Yep, exactly. So it's it's a it's a non-trivial problem to solve, but it that one exercise alone has really helped keep us uh, focused on what what the goal is and gives us kind of a a thing to to design towards. Mm-hmm. So, how many yeah. of the original races are in the new game? I mean, I, I, if you, even if you can't say them all, we know the Velox are in there. Who who else? <laughs> we do. Who else might be making an appearance that you can actually tell us about? We don't know yet, but there, there are, um, and we're still, you know, it's one of the things we would actually probably reach out to our fans, assuming we, we get lucky enough to get funded and actually get to build this thing. It's one, we're going to be throwing a lot of questions out to the fans. Yeah. Of what do you want? That's one of the very first questions is like, who, who would you like to see, uh, you know, in here make a comeback? I, I think there are some that are kind of obvious. Right, so the Veloxi uh, would be one obvious one, and um, probably uh, you know who doesn't love a Spemin? Right, I mean, right. one of the, yeah, one yeah. of the most iconic things from the game. I, yeah. I have a particular penchant for the uh, Tandalu Eshve and the Tandalu Eshvara. I, like I think they. Oh, I love them. Yeah, they were great. With their, I love they were the, the they were the ones with the masks, right? With the yeah, yeah, the masks, masks, right? And right. they're very meticulous. Um, yeah, the, the the manner of doing things exactly the right, right, the right way. Absolutely. Which which was um, and they just and they have these, fight these endless wars <laughs> over the stupidest things. Yeah, yep. yeah. For me, I was always a sucker for the sad sacks of the Dweenal, You know, oh, the Dweenal right. Just, oh. The whiners. Yeah. They're just like the Eeyores of the universe. You wanted to you know? give them a hug, just, though. You really wanted to hug them. But then they were, then they were jerks to you. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, yeah, take, know. Your, take your take your and get out of my face. <laughs> just, just take your nidberries. I don't even want them. I'm no, but it helps us all. 
Well, I'm I'm exceedingly happy that the Elise the Velox are going to make the Veloxi are going to make an appearance because they're the best. They are. Oh yeah, they were fun. They're fun to write. I really enjoyed. Oh, I bet um, the way they talk. So I think they'd have to be there. The you know that's that's another fun thing. We're we're we. we I'd, I'm looking forward to, again, if we get the opportunity, uh, focusing a lot of attention on the communications and how that works, how you I, – I, I'm fascinated with language. Um, I got my degree way back when in, in linguistics, biolinguistics, and um, my goal actually – uh, was to do communication research with marine mammals and um, and I was positioning myself to be the guy they called in to talk to the aliens when the aliens landed no no lie that was my that would be um, awesome that was my plan before I got kind of sidetracked and never went back to grad school because I thought i 'll just take one more year one more year mm-hmm. one more year to do uh, games um, but so that 's always been a fascination of mine is to this day, you know, uh, language and communication. Um, I, I speak Thai and, and Japanese and a little bit of French. Wow. And I, I love, um, I love that stuff and figuring out, you know, how, how language impacts the way you think and how you think impacts your language and what communication might mean and how you might need to learn to speak to these aliens um and then of course making it a little bit absurd and funny and doing the same kind of satirical caricatures um that we you know did in the original games uh, that's all going to be a joy if uh if we get managed to get to that well i hate to ask this particular question but do you have a plan b if you don't make your goal yeah, I mean, I sure. I, I, you know, we always have to have a you know, exit strategy, right? And so for us, um, you know, we've talked about a lot of different options. And, and honestly, right now is what we would do is, you know, continue on with the projects that we're working, uh, working on uh, and devoting the time between those projects to, to probably beefing up um, a, a demo a little bit better, a little bit more. Uh, be able to show more uh, to not just the fans, but to potential publishing partners. Um, and so how long that would take, what kind of time we could do, we don't know. You know, as you know, the studio is focused right now on shipping Jam and Earl. Right. Um, and uh, and so that's that's a big chunk of, of everyone's time. Um, but yeah, yeah. So honestly, it would be basically flesh it, you know, maybe go back to the drawing board, listen to what everyone was talking about, the fans were saying during the whole campaign, which has been phenomenal. And, um, and kind of, you know, reassess the design and, and, uh, see what we can, if we can make a kind of a focused MVP, minimum viable product or something, you know, for the, for the game. Well, what so I'm hoping, what, what alien species are Toe Jam and Earl and will they be appearing in the new Starfleet? <laughs> 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 That's funny. Um, you know, there's nothing stopping us from doing that. We right. totally could. And, uh, we People might just would love decide that. to. People would a little love surprise in there. that. What was that family? I think it was Starflight Two, where it was like the Hensons, oh, or, um, or the Hendersons. Yeah, there it, was the the, uh, the Johnsons were in there. The Johnsons, right? And they were like yeah. a hippie. They were like these just these, this, this, the oh, Johnson family, these humanoids right. on this planet, right? And they had the Nidberries. Yeah, right. Because right. um, my point is, like something like that with TJ and E would be rad because it's like it was this random planet you're like the johnsons 
okay, cool. And like, and just out of everything in the universe, just like, hey, we're the yeah, Johnsons. They're like farmers. Yeah, right. That's what I mean. Like, it's not hippies either. They're farmers. And it's so cool. <laughs> so I don't know. I always imagine something like that, like, you know, a planet where it's like, you know, maybe not necessarily a Funkatroned out, but like Toe Jam and all there for whatever reason. Maybe the, maybe the, the, the ship has landed and they're hanging out, having some. So, yeah, you know, it just it depends. It would be fun to take it uh, even farther and actually have you be able to communicate with them. And um, it's it's all just a question of time and assets and that we need to create and yeah, um, and of course money. But um, it sure would be fun. And like I said, we are total liberty to do that. You know, um, me and Mark Vorsinger own the TJNE IP, and Rod owns the. Uh, Starflight IP, so there's no no like legal hurdles. It's just a question of you know what would be fun and what can we afford to do. You know, we we actually uh, I actually almost put, or I should say, we Anthony was working on Doki Doki Universe with me. Almost put Tojim and Earl into mm. Doki Doki Universe. We actually had the whole planet ready, all of the artwork, all of the assets, the stories written for, and everything. Um, we, we had the okay from Sony to put them in, but then at the last minute, Sony, uh, legal got kind of nervous, uh, despite the fact that me and Mark own the IP and there really wasn't an issue. Lawyers just get kind of nervous about that kind of thing. They just want to play it safe. And so they asked us to take it out. So we did, but, um, Hmm. yeah, yeah. You know, they have a lot on the line and we, You've got to respect their their sense of what they're comfortable with, but um, you know it was a it was a little bit of a bummer at the time because I thought that would be a fun little shout out. But that that that's kind of leaves it open now. Toe Jam will do make a cameo. It'll be fun because it'll be the first time they do that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, are, are they the only game. members of their species, or is there like a whole planet of Toe Jam minerals? Oh, there's a whole planet of Funkatronians. Yeah, um, yeah, Smoot and Tebow and Sharla and Lawanda, old Otis. Yeah, Planet yeah, Funkatron. I, 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 I shudder to think, but if I if I went Googling, I'm sure that there is a rich fan fiction. <laughs> oh, yeah. God, help us all, but yes, I'm sure. Yeah, well, if you're flying along our flight three through space and all of a sudden you start to hear some bass line that sounds like Brothers Johnson or something, you'll know you're getting close <laughs> to Funkatron. <laughs> I, you make the mothership never, connection. And, I have yeah. to admit, I've never played one of. I've never played one of those games. I I apologize. Um, no, that's that's totally cool. You know, it, I just you just hold out a little longer and full on uh, best of all of them combined in this new one. So I, that's right. It's coming it, soon. Is it coming to so PC? What if, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's okay. what we did. Our yeah. Um, oh, good. What, okay, great. What if we could actually? like meet the leader of their planet and it's Bootsy Collins. That would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. I'd be okay with that. Did, did you ever, did you ever see the old Greg thing that they did on, uh, it was the mighty Bush. If, if not, I'll send you a link to it. it it's got yeah. a Bootsy yeah. Collins segment. Where I sometimes feel Bootsy like you're Collins th- found I've, the funk that fell from space. And mm-hmm. that's how he formed parliament. I sometimes feel like nice. you're, the only, you're the only person that's seen that because I've yeah, never known anyone else to recommend it. So. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest with you, now what engine? Uh, which engine? Excuse me. Are you building the new game upon, or is it a custom jobby? Because it's got to be a big one. 
You mean Starflight? Star, 3? Starflight, Starflight three? three, yes. Which which engine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think very few guys trying to roll their own when they're. So we're using Unity right now. It's been great. Um, okay. You know, it's not final. You know, we're talking about it's basically going to boil down to Unity or Unreal, but Unity has been good, and Unity, I believe, is what Toad TJ and E is in. So a lot of shared knowledge there. It'd be kind of you know, again, although we're not one hundred percent, it'd be kind of foolish to to sort of ignore some of that that kind of shared and learned knowledge on the on the engine. And will it have multiplayer? That's what everyone's going to ask you. Now I know it's not, but everyone is going yeah, to so, ask you that. So right now, it's it's definitely it's a single player experience. Um, we want to focus on that. There, we do have ideas for uh, for how we could meaningfully, excuse me, <coughs> for how we could meaningfully do um, multiplayer. But it, it it's very much focused on a single player experience right now. That's that's definitely like every, anything else is just sort of cool what ifs that we have in the back of our head. They're not being planned for development. Yeah. You know, the lead engineer who's good friends, Anthony, and also of course a big fan. He's, um, he's very experienced in network play and multiplayer play and he yeah. really, really wants to do it. Uh, and if, you know, again, it just comes down to uh, what we can afford to do. I can attest after having just been through this on yeah. toe jam and Earl that it's, um, it's not an undertaking, you know, you, you don't, take that on lightly it's um uh you know it's it just takes time and money so it just depends what we have to work with yeah yeah it's totally fair i mean i i get annoyed that everyone asks that question so i just thought i'd ask it in jest like when are you gonna Mm -hmm. go up it's like just shut up not every game no no it's a it's a valid question i mean and again you look at the modern landscape you know i mean forget it dude you know even these quote-unquote like the Hello Games doing with No Man's Sky. Eve Online is like just the ultimate in all, you know, uh, MMOs. So anything sci-fi, you're definitely going to be talking multiplayer at some point. So totally valid question. Uh, yeah, let me ask you this because it's just kind of a fun question. If we had presented Starflight Three as a, uh, you know, as an MMO, as a as a shared universe experience, uh, how do you think that would have been perceived? in contrast to, you know, to a single player story-esque experience, do you, do you Hmm. think um, that would have been a better position to take? I don't think so because with, with the Starflight games, it's like, you're the guy, you're the crew that's saving the universe. And, and Mm -hmm. how do you make an MMO out of that? Is everyone saving the universe? I, right, it's like a Star Wars Galaxies problem. Like not or, everyone or, can be a Jedi. Yeah, or an El- or an Elder Scrolls Online problem. I mean, Elder Scrolls Online is a great game, but it's like we all can't be the Dragonborn, so we're all just running around, mm-hmm. you know, as a guy doing a thing. So I think <laughs> if it were, I think if it was an MMO, it might take something away from it. Like now, maybe if you made it like some kind of prequel where there was a galactic empire thousands of years ago that actually existed, you know, where there was this busy universe. But I mean, part of the great thing about the Starflight games is how alone you felt, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. even though there were the, even though there were these other races to are into a lot of times, it's just you and the blackness. And, and it was, yeah. it, it made it feel just that much bigger and scarier, you know, and, and it's not like a scary game, but it just made it that much more awesome, that much more, uh, full of awe, and so I, I'd worry that making it an MMO 
might take away from that a little bit. I'd still back it. Mm-hmm. I I mean, it, you could put the you could put the Starflight name in a match three game, and I would freaking back it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know yeah, what that would entail. Right. Match the Endurium. I don't know. Um, yeah, we're writing that down though. No, I'm <laughs> Yeah. yeah, make that yeah, like uh, make that an arcade game in the star in the starport, like at the bar. Yeah, you put yeah. a bar in there. Yeah, yeah. dude. <laughs> okay, well, we'll dedicate it to you. It'll have your name <laughs> on the arcade, yeah, but uh, on the arc- cabinet. Yeah, I know. I hear what you're saying, and you're, you know, it wouldn't be the same game. It would. It, we'd have to be willing to kind of walk away from uh, a number of the core things that made that Starflight mm-hmm. experience what it was. But um, nevertheless, you know, uh, in this business, you have to be pragmatic. And if that's the sort of thing that people would um, want enough to fund and would let us get off the ground and we could build that, whereas, you know, it would be much harder to do what we're, what we're trying to do. It's kind of, you know, uh, you know, hindsight now, cause we're down this path, but ultimately you, you go where you, you, where, whatever will work, you know, whatever you can make work. And I, we would make, um, that, uh, you know, shared universe, uh, a Starflight esque universe and come up, try to come up with a whole lot of ways to, to let people have a story like experience in there. It would be quite a challenge to, uh, let people have different stories that kind of overlapped and intersected. And, um, you know, again, we'd have to do a lot of creative thinking and R and D, uh, but you know, it's, it's certainly, certainly doable and exciting in kind of different ways than what we're trying to do. Uh, and mostly now I ask the questions just cause I'm curious. Yeah. No, I mean that's it's really rare that we get asked questions on this on the on this mm-hmm. podcast. So that's fascinating. Uh I liked it. <laughs> I liked it actually. I liked it. Um but nice. I mean it, also if you went the MMO route you'd be like it's not Eve online, you know? I mean it it it, it it'd be tough to compete with, with yeah, that juggernaut, it's true. you know. Yeah, that is. Right. It's it, it, just the resources they have. Forget it. And it, it's also it's funny like my buddy I used to work with play dota 2 all the time probably still does and i was like man there's gotta be a, a that's a big pie you know can't we get a piece of that league of legends dota 2 action and it's just like you could try yeah but everyone's, man, been, tra- everyone's of- been trying everyone's been trying yeah and the cost and- of admission is extremely high oh my God. Yeah. and we see so. and honestly we do see a good amount of space games coming out that are multiplayer only they're either like arena based or small MMOs and mm-hmm. they don't do well a lot of the time mm-hmm. Be- be- mm-hmm. because they just don't build an audience, I guess. I'm not sure entirely why. I mean, I think it's because there's not enough single player content um, in these games. It's just, you know, arena. Well, and, arena and you start arena. to rely more on mechanics, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you can't scale up, you have to rely on mechanics and, and, Although mechanics is a huge part of Starflight, you know, you got to find the fun, make that interesting while exactly. you're going to explore the story, right? But uh, still, that's why, you know, having a story that's got this nice thread to it or multiple threads, as we've talked about, that's something we can grasp, not just in our minds, but also just in our development team, that, that the kind of team that we're targeting for this and the size of that is Something like sure, there's some. If we find some cool ideas for network multiplayer, you you bet, man. We'll we'll definitely consider it if it, if it works. But 
it uh, it's something that's just yeah, it's just too too tough to go to try and figure out. Yeah, I, I can't even. My brain just trying to think of how you would make that work. Something like this work as a multiplayer game. My brain starts to hurt. It just <laughs> sounds yeah. so big. And it would be so fun to like try and R and. Um, but you know, if we had a little bit bigger of a money hose, um, we could probably do that, but we don't, I'm not, who am I kidding? We don't even have a money hose. So <laughs> <laughs> we don't have a money, we don't have a money squirt gun. So yeah, Paul, yeah. uh, Paul on YouTube says multiplayer melee, like star control. And, um, that I think it's kind of been done and it, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't like you have a game like subspace that's been going for. 21 years that's very mm-hmm. kind of melee star controlly and then you have some newer games that no one played i don't want to mention names um <laughs> that no one played because people look at it and go oh look, look i see on steam no one's playing this it doesn't have bots mm-hmm. forget it you know right so right and that whole infrastructure to build out bots and blah 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 oh my oof. god it yeah. really can take away from what we're trying to focus on, which is the next solid chapter in Starflight. Yeah, and melee and Star um, melee from Star Control as a model um, it, it, it certainly would be fun. Uh, like you said, um, I think that's been done. We could, you know, we could model that even more strongly, though. And uh, and I got to say that if people ask me what my favorite games have been over time and what I've spent the most time playing. Um, that game melee and star control is probably my all time, uh, favorite game in terms of the amount of, um, the amount of hours I spent playing that. Um, I never knew that. That's cool. Yeah. Well, you know, Paul, we talked about Paul Ritchie already. He and I, um, were, we shared offices back in those days. Um, uh, and then after we, after sharing, actually sharing a tiny office together, we were across the hall from each other for years and we had this fierce, uh, very playful, uh, melee competition going uh, all the oh time. And, and the rest of the, you know, um, people were, working with Paul and working with me would stand around and watch us play every day as we sat down to face off, um, again. And, um, so, uh, but you know, that said, um, and like Anthony was just pointing at, uh, Starflight, it was really about story. And like you said, how do you do that in a multiplayer context? It would certainly be challenging. That's exactly the kind of challenge, though, that I find um, really exciting because it pushes the boundaries of what, uh, you know, interactive experience can offer. And I just love it when people uh, take on a challenge like that and try to do something truly new. And I, I love having opportunities like that as well but it's hard it's hard to come by those opportunities in this business you know that's so risk averse and you're always having to um you know kind of scrape to get enough money to hit your deadlines and bootstrap you know um so you'd need we'd need some big pockets uh in order to really do justice to exploring that space but oh man what uh what an opportunity that would be well i just thought of a way it could work um maybe the only way it would work is um kind of like a bridge cruise style thing where you're all co-op on the same ship 
doing different things. Mm-hmm. Like Pulsar. Like Pulsar. Mm-hmm. Lost Colony. Exactly. But you're in this massive universe where you're like so it's kinda like Borderlandsy where you're co opting co oping all toward the same goal and you're all moving together toward the same universe, but you're all on the same ship. So maybe that could work. But that might be the only sure. way I could that, that might be the only way I think that you keep the story and the focus. Absolutely. And and again, yeah, you know, that could totally work. Cause like, you know, you saw that problem working toward the same goal, right? Like you're, there's still one savior team that's in this whole universe versus everyone's the savior. Well, that can't work. Exactly. You got to run into some, you still got to figure out like how to do the, what if you only got four out of five people? Is that a bot? Is that bot any good? AI is really hard for this kind of stuff. So it's, yeah, just the R&D yeah. time is just. So what happens so. when, you know, you don't want to play for, for a week and the other people do, right. do they continue the story and you just kind of miss out and then you come yeah, back exactly. and the story's almost done. You know, it's yep. also not a massive multiplayer experience, which is what, um, you know, we were kind of speculating about, but um, I do, I do still feel like a, mul- a multiplayer experience, even limited like that, is is possible. Sure, there's there the, the questions that we're posing are hard questions, but they're not impossible to solve or answer, and um, and it would sure be fulfilling, wouldn't it? That's kind of the the dream, you know. Back when we made Starflight One, Rod had this um, this this idea, this fantasy, uh, well, I don't know if I should even call it a fantasy because he really was planning to pursue this, what he called theater gaming, where he wanted to, you know, rent out theaters and have um, people come as the crew with different skills and have consoles and on a giant theater screen screen have – you know, uh, the common view of what's going on, whereas everybody had their own consoles. And, and he actually wanted to get money and build this and make, um, make you know, a starship experience for people who could um, come regularly to something like this. And, and, and of course, you know, thing, then. it's sort oh. of what? Sort of like Artemis. Because that, that's the bridge thing that they get out of conversions. Mm. It's uh, that's what Tom, we do with Quintet. Tom, yeah, and, mm, uh, right on that. But Tom from Interplay uh, wrote Artemis and has been mm. run on conventions and stuff. And then there's another guy that's working on another thing that's sort of a different angle of it. There's a few. But, yeah, there's, there's cool. multiple projects. Yeah, so I've, I've heard of the these uh, right since then, and uh, I, you know, Rod was a little bit of a visionary because this was back yeah. in you know mid 80s when he wanted to do this there's um, a company in france right now because it, it's they call them uh this particular thing they call it like an escape room because mm. it's it's just like you go into this room and it's an environment and in this case it's a submarine and it's like a steampunk submarine so you're like on the nautilus and then everybody actually has to like watch the gauges and spin the dials and stuff but all the all the like the view out the porthole you're looking at an lcd monitor but it's like when you're in the room, it's it's like you might as well be on the Nautilus. And unfortunately, everything that they've said and done is in French, and I don't speak a lick of French. But <laughs> it's beautiful to look at. It, it sounds awesome. It sounds cool. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it. VR without the helmet. Yeah, yeah right. right. That's so cool. Wow. Hmm. Yeah, I'll throw you a link to it. It's worth seeing. Yeah. So there are ways to do it, right? There's ways to. <laughs> 
but it, it all takes money and it takes experimenting and, um, you know, and it's not going to come out of indie gaming and it's not probably not going to come out of triple A gaming either. No. Uh, yeah, until no. some indie proves it could work, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have, to, I have to say, if the campaign isn't successful, and I hope it is, and we want it to be, of course, but if it's not, we'll still be here as long as it takes to make Starflight 3, now that we know it's going to happen, take, uh, take as much time as you need. You've already waited. Yeah, man. We've already waited twenty nine years since Starflight. <laughs> is that the math? Twenty nine. Yeah, twenty nine yeah. years since 30, Starflight yeah. two. So uh, almost thirty. Oh my god. Oh my god. I feel so old. Um, but uh, yeah, we will wait if if that's what it takes. So thanks, guys. That's awesome. Oh god. Yeah, that is awesome. Thanks. Yeah, we're gonna try to make it happen. Yeah, I mean, I have a feeling. Because a lot of kick, I, I've I'm in internet marketing, so I watch a lot of Kickstarters and I back a lot of Kickstarters, and a lot of them get a lot of their funding in the last 48 hours. They get that reminder email, you know, and everyone's like, "Oh my god, I have to fund this!" And then boom, huge influx of um, of pledges. I'm really hoping that happens because this is the most expensive crowdfunding project I've backed. I'll tell you what. <laughs> Nice, <laughs> thanks, man. Yeah, yeah, we're hoping that you're hoping to hit the end of that bathtub curve, you know, as they, you know, with the funding, pretty, pretty hard. So, yeah, fingers crossed. Here's a weird question: Is the box yeah. art for Starflight Two canon? What does that even mean? As opposed to other I, box art, I, 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 I'm, I'm not what Paul Potvin. I guess on, how can it? Like, yeah. uh, I think what that means is, um, are the are the way the aliens and ships depicted on that cover oh, really right. officially approved? Are they correct? Uh, that's what I would assume that means. Um, um, that um, that cover was painted by um, oh, what's his last name? Sean, artist named um, Sean. Mm. He was a really talented artist, um, kind of difficult to work with, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but amazingly talented. And um, I loved his interpretation of the different aliens. He that did was a great art. on there. That was that great was art. Just yeah, great. I love yeah. the art. I love Wasn't the art on that box. Yeah. I keep yeah. seeing someone has like on eBay a framed poster size version of that. I keep meaning to buy it. Really? Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, I keep meaning hmm. to buy it. I know. I I want it. I want it. I keep meaning to get it. Um, yeah. I so I'd art. say it be, it became canon as soon as he did it. You know, mm, okay. like he he defined what they looked like, and ever and since then, I I was like, yep, that's what they look like. Yeah. <laughs> this is this oh. is awesome. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Paul owns the the piece of art. I was just talking the framed ver- the big framed version of the the box cover. He apparently owns that. So that's awesome. Oh, now, that's I, nice. now I need to get one. That's really all there is. Now I need to get one. That's all there is to it. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, man. So, so we should probably wrap up. We've been going for almost two hours. Um, so, friends, the game uh, is Starflight 3 Universe. It is currently, as we speak, got about eight days, le- eight or nine days left in its campaign. Uh, you should totally go over to Fig and back it. 
Uh, we will uh, have links. We have links all over the place of this thing. We're gonna have it in the. We have it in the video description. We've got it on the chats everywhere. You have no excuse not to go over there and fig some money. I don't know what the verb would be because they say because <laughs> on, Kick, on Kickstart they say kick some money, but on fig, what do you say on fig? Fig some money to the campaign so we can make this happen because. None of us knew that Starflight 3 was going to be a thing. And now that we know it's going to be a thing, we really want it to be a thing. Really, <laughs> really badly. So, sad. so please go to fig.com and, uh, find, look, and, get, and back Starflight 3. Uh, the interesting thing about and Fig... Actually, that's, go ahead. Sorry, just, go ahead. sorry to interrupt, but that's, that's actually a fig.co. Uh, that's not oh, .com. So it's, I apologize. Yeah, it's fig. No worries. No, that's fine. Everyone does that. It's fig.co slash starflight3, all one word. That's where you want to go. Yeah, and there'll be links for this in the the podcast notes. There'll be links for this in the video notes. Um, It's all over the place. Uh, But just a couple quick programming notes before we wrap up. This Thursday on our live stream on our LAN party, we should be playing Overload. I I hope we're playing Overload. I think we're playing Overload. Yeah. And – and uh, then next Tuesday, uh, not entirely sure. I've offered it to a guest, and I'm waiting to hear back. But if not, we're probably going to talk about hardware because new video cards are coming out. I'm building a new computer, so I thought that'd be a fun topic. So next week on the show, not 100% yet. Uh, hopefully we'll be confirming that soon. But uh, Anthony and Greg, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your – I'm sure running a fig campaign is super busy and, and doing the Toe Jam and Earl thing. You guys are about to kick that out the door. So I'm sure you guys are That's super right, swamped. Uh, so I want to thank you for taking the time out of your hectic day to talk to uh, us about uh, Starflight one, Starflights 1, 2, and 3. Uh, it's been a real joy. I, I'm still like super giddy and I've had a hard time holding it together, holding it together because I'm just like <laughs> ah! internally this whole time. Like, oh, my God. So, uh, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but I, I really yeah, want to ask some great questions. Yeah. Lots of really good questions. Thanks. And lots of fun. Yeah. Thanks for too. giving us a platform to talk about the game and try and help drum up more awareness. Oh, uh, we could really use it. So thank you. Totally my pleasure. And I'm really hoping that we can have you back once this hit one, once this hits 1.0 in a few years, because <laughs> that's probably, yeah, man, how, we'll that's do probably it. how long it would take. I'm guessing, right? Two or three years to make the full thing roughly. Yeah. The estimate estimated ship date is uh, yeah. Sometime late 2020. Yeah. Oh my God! Well, you'll probably still beat Star Citizen. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Sorry, that's true. I'm yeah. sorry. I can't not make that joke. I'm sorry. They are fu- doing one heck of a big undertaking. Oh, but oh my God! All the oh. yeah, un- undertakers of word. We, yeah. Anyway, yeah. yeah. Anyway, let's not go down that rabbit hole. Okay. Uh, but everyone, thank you yeah. so much for uh, listening. Uh, to the show and everything, uh, we really appreciate it. You all asked some really good questions throughout the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time. Have a great night, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>